Hype Beast Radio. I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. This is The Business of Hype, and on this show, we discuss hype in all its iterations. And when one thinks about hype, I know maybe one thing that doesn't pop into your head is ice cream. But if you're in New York City and you walk down Rivington Street right off of the Bowery, I am sure that you will change your mind. How can an ice cream parlor have a queue of over 25 people in the dead of winter? And why would someone leave a high-paying job working at the highest levels of the culinary world only to then focus on ice cream? When you have the tenacity and the skills and the mindset, like today's Business of Hype guest, it's really a no-brainer. Nick Morgenstern's desserts have been called the holy grail of ice cream. It's not stuffy. It's not elite. It's made for everyone. It's the perfect mix of simple nostalgia and innovation all in one scoop. But it wasn't all fun and games in making this ice cream brand. The praise only came recently, after years of finding his way through the food industry. And today, we get to hear from a chef's brain on how to build a brand, create a business, and focus on what really matters. The hype? That's just a cherry on top. Everyone, please welcome Nick Morgenstern of Morgenstern's Finest Ice Cream. You know, usually on the show, we have a lot of fashion designers, footwear designers, people of sort of what you would normally think of as hype beast culture. Um, but I always love it when I get people from a, a different sector, a different industry on just to see what we can learn from each other. Um, and you have a very interesting business that has never been covered in the last six seasons, 50 plus episodes of the business of hype. So I'm excited to have you on. Um, I'm excited you, to be here, but before we jump in, describe or define two sentences, what is the business of hype? Uh, the business of hype is my, is my birth child of a show where I basically spent the last 10 years telling young people to like quit their day jobs and follow their dreams. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them listened. And then they were like, what, what do, do I, I do now? now? <laughs> yeah. Like what, what happens next, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get more into the weeds of like the reality of actually starting a business. It's passion and sort of like bravery is one thing, but acumen and, and wherewithal and patience, these are other things that I'm trying to find commonalities between all these people that I'm speaking to. Right. Yeah. But you just said that you don't, you like Morgan Stern's, my business may or may not have like fallen into the category of what you normally are talking about right. here. But then when, when I started thinking about doing this with you, I'm mm -hmm. like, well, Morgan Stern's is also its own hype machine. Yes. And its own, you know what I mean? So like, totally. there's a lot of crossover between exactly. the, I would just be like street culture, mm -hmm. however you want to define it. Yeah. I don't know too much about like the idea of sneaker culture. I'm aware that that's a thing, but. Mm -hmm. um, well, from know. afar, if someone were to look at your shop mm -hmm. and you sort of blocked off the inside, you would think there would be like a sneaker lineup or a Supreme lineup. Right, because people are waiting in line. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you could say that if people are like waiting for Disneyland as well, though. Mm-hmm. It's a similar thing. It is. And I actually think Supreme lineups look like Disneyland now. Totally. Like it's like parents with yep. 12 year old kids trying to buy a souvenir. Yeah. Some of, there's some of that. And then that happens in our store as well. Yeah. The yeah. experience of just hanging out. It's experiential out, yeah. for people, you know. Right. We struggle with the line. That's a big struggle, brick and mortar struggle. It's mm-hmm. like, how do you manage a line? It's the number right. one complaint that we get online about our brand is the line. <laughs> but it's also. It's, it's kind of also the thing that makes it exciting. I mean, you know, it depends on who you're talking to. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're creating a product that we want to deliver to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, ice cream is a real equalizer in this country. Right. And has always been the American indulgence for 150 years and is really important to our culture and continues to be really important to our culture. So, and it's really... Um, the foundation of the the love of that and like why it continues to be a relevant cultural touchstone mm-hmm. is because it's for everyone. Yeah. At any time, all the time. Right. And that's like something Rich, that, poor, doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. And it's those barriers were broken down hundred years ago in this country because there was, you know, access and wealth and industrial revolution was giving refrigeration to everyone. And so mm-hmm. everyone could have it and it was an everyday thing. Right. Whereas its history in Europe and other parts of the world was really for the elite, the rich, the um, royalty. And so... We equalize that. So, so the idea of like a line can be a deterrent. That's a deterrent for people, then they can't get to it. And that's a problem right, for me. Right. For our business model is not to make people wait for the product. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we get too deep, let's sure. introduce yourself properly. Right. Uh, who do we have in the studio today? Uh, my name is Nick Morgenstern, and I have an ice cream parlor called Morgenstern's Finest Ice Cream. Nice. And you've been in business, you said, since 2013, mm-hmm. right? We opened our doors to our store in 2014. Okay. We, our company was formed in 13 and then leases and all building and all that kind of stuff. But we opened Morgan Stearns in 2014. Okay. This is really interesting because I like the fact that you, you formed the business in 13, opened the doors in 14, spent a year or so sort of preparing. Um, how do you go about even birthing the idea that you're going to have your own ice cream parlor? The gestation period for like figuring out that that was something that I was going to do predated that by probably a decade. Okay. So just like slowly coming into existence through filtering ideas and then understanding like what it is that I want to do and understanding what it means to do that thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the conceptual idea of having an ice cream parlor in this case and like what that could be, look like, feel like, smell like, taste like versus the reality of what it is to do that thing, those two things are very, very different. <laughs> right. So, were you in food before that? I've been in food my whole life. Okay. So yeah. talk about what you were doing while you were gestating. Um, I graduated high school in 96. Mm-hmm. I went to culinary school, and then um, I immediately moved to Germany. My first job was working for the U.S. military as a civilian, as a cook okay. um, in Heidelberg. And then traveled and cooked a lot in Europe at that time. So I was young, I was 18, and then came back to the United States. And I cooked, always doing pastry, um, and it pretty quickly gravitated towards um, four-star restaurants. Okay. And so I worked for a guy named Michael Mina in San Francisco, where I'm from. Um, and then I worked for him in San Francisco, and then I moved to Hawaii to open a restaurant for him there on Maui. He never opened the restaurant, but I stayed on the island and um, worked at a kind of like a, I don't say it's famous, but there's this place that's an institution on the North Shore called Mama's Fish House. So I worked there and then um, I read Kitchen Confidential and I was like, I got to move to New York. 
was kind of losing my mind. I was too young to be like <laughs> on an sunsetting, yeah. you know what I mean? right, right, literally and Retiring. figuratively. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, yeah, I was, like, got tired of like looking at a perfect sunset in the <laughs> rearview mirror of my Toyota truck every day, and right. I was like, I gotta get out of here. Uh-huh. So I did, and. Uh, Kids, if you move to an island and the island tells you to get off, get off the island. <laughs> It'll do that, especially yeah. in Hawaii. Right. So why it's too perfect? No, nah, I just think there's like real energy in those places, especially there. There's like definitely really strong vibrations in that part of the world, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. Uh-huh. And like, when you go to a place like that, I think you need to your own energy needs to be like aligned with the place, and if it's not, then this things are not gonna uh-huh. work for you and like you know you can use like the expression like that's the way the cookie crumbles and like things just don't go your way or they do go your way but yeah. in an environment like that like the cookie could be crumbling the wrong way like all the time mm. and it's really i think vibration of the island versus yeah. your vibration and like sometimes they're not lined up and you got to get out of there and that's what it was for me i needed to do something else and okay. so I was like attuned enough to be like mm-hmm. I'm also like I'm not happy and not satisfied with what I'm doing, the work and everything else. Yes, this place is beautiful. I swam in the ocean every day. I was like really fit and felt good and all that stuff, but just wasn't going to get me going to what I needed to do. So I came, I moved to New York. Okay. And then I worked for a lot of people. I'm not going to like go through my whole resume. It was okay. early 2000s. Um 6 months after I got here it was 9/11. That was kind of you know a scary moment for New York. It was like a place to be. The hospitality industry was really shaken by that in a yeah. lot of different ways. Yep. Um, I went to work for Danielle um, at the flagship, Danielle Balud's flagship on that British side. Sure. And um, like the, I, I think I, it was like the day or like whatever it was, the following week after 9-11, like they closed for lunch and they've never opened for lunch again. And that's like a big deal for a Michelin-starred, you know, highly like big place. restaurant. Yeah. Like, they stay open for lunch. Those places serve lunch almost like it's obligatory, like to make themselves accessible to whoever wants to come and have that experience. It's mm-hmm. like it's really important. It's a tradition in Europe, and like those places, you know, you can go for lunch yep. if you're traveling and your schedule doesn't allow you to go for a dinner or you can't. Whatever the reasons are, it's mm-hmm. like you are open for lunch. And yeah. I remember that that was like a really big deal that they didn't they closed for lunch there. So um, I stayed with him, and then I worked in France and. But always was I was working in fine dining restaurants, okay. so doing like pretty high end, very specific and almost like myopic work as far as like what the work is with the food, and then as also like the culture of the restaurants and the business and a real strict hierarchy of mm-hmm. a brigade system, which is based on a military system, which is like the person at the top is in charge, and the, it trickles down from there. And so, so restaurants work like military. Fine dining, yeah. Fr- yeah, French brigade system is based on a military system of like who's in charge. The chef is in charge, and then it's chef de cuisine, and then sous chef, and it goes down the line. I mean, right. all the way down to the porters and the dishwashers. Mm-hmm. But you follow the chain of command. Okay, if the person above you tells you that's what's going on, that's what you do. And in those environments, when there's such an exacting standard, it, that's the way that it has to function. Yeah, you know, wabi sabi doesn't really work in mm-hmm. that environment. Right, you're not going to be able to execute freestyle. <laughs> like it does, you're not going to be able to execute at that level. Yeah, you know, and people right. are paying that price for that type of food, mm-hmm. and so so the military helped in that regard. I didn't. I wasn't exposed to that <laughs> like necessarily, but I think I was like really drawn to the pursuit of excellence. Yeah, and I think I learned early on that. I don't really, this is true today, I don't like or get along with people who don't work hard. Mm-hmm. And in those environments, people work really hard. Yes. They're like very focused mm-hmm. and are willing to do whatever it takes to reach the goal. Yeah. So that's 
was in me and then I found this place. The other side of it is those environments are typically not um, mentally or emotionally healthy. And that's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, that was 20 years ago that I was doing that. But, you know, the sad part or the really challenging part is like a lot of my contemporaries that I worked with at those times, um, they don't, they're not, they don't, they're not developed. And so then they get stunted and Mm -hmm. they get stuck. And Mm -hmm. then you see, it's very common in our industry to find guys that are like 40, 50, 60 years old and they're kind of like lost with what to do. So is it from burnout? I mean, burnout, the, the symptom of burnout would be that like, you're not able to find your gyroscope Mm -hmm. for yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so I currently work 70 to 80 hours a week. That's too much. That's too many hours. Mm-hmm. It's my thing and it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's too many hours mm-hmm. for me to reset and like know, you know, what my barometer is and like where I want to be going. So, you know, finding space. Like yeah. we were talking earlier, I do the triathlon and that's like it creates a really kind of a routine. Separate thing, yeah. But it like forces me to have something else that mm-hmm. really allows me to just like be in touch with another part of myself as a person. When Word. you get into the food world at that level and you really get into the tornado, and in my case, I'm like the eye of the tornado is me, yeah. Yeah. then you can just like, you know, get spun out in so many different ways. And then that can affect your ability to communicate clearly to have patience, to be able to maintain perspective. Yep. These are all like critical yeah. pieces to success in anything. Yeah. It's like those things, being able to do those things. And in our business, in the food world, you know, it just like demands time. Mm-hmm. It's just time. It takes so much of your time. Physical and, time. like Yeah, and there's no substitute. This is so important to remember. The Business of Hype is a podcast that aims to provide some level of guidance for entrepreneurs and brands, but the actual work that's directly related to these careers isn't the complete picture. It's not just about how to grow your brand, but it's also about how to deal with the environment and the rat race that you're facing. This is just as important, if not more important. If I can compare it to the athlete, there's the work that you do in the gym and on the field. These are skills that relate directly to the task at hand. But then there's the mental preparation, sports psychology, yoga, therapy. These are the things that separate good athletes from great ones. Just as Nick points out, communicating clearly, having patience, and maintaining a sense of perspective is vital for managing a team and running a business. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, food, fashion, or footwear, The work is reliant on your ability to be a self-starter. And that can be hectic, draining, and downright lonely. And when business reaches a certain point, things can get lost. Things like communication, patience, and a grounded perspective. You'll find a lot of entrepreneurs have very interesting side hobbies that don't directly relate to their job at all. But rather, these things force them to not think about their work. Anything that can switch the mind to take them away from the work will help bring back a clearer approach. When I was younger, it was DJing in bars and clubs around New York City. The preparation and devotion required in creating a DJ set was more than enough to take me out of the everyday struggle of getting staple off the ground. 
Later on, it became No Limit Poker. I mean, you could say the stakes got higher, but really, my brain needed more stimulation to be able to disconnect myself from the work. And if I wasn't focused on those tasks, I was either going to get booed out of the DJ booth or I'd leave the casino with very empty pockets. The takeaway here is to have perspective. Work hard and play hard. And never forget that time is the one thing you can't ever buy. So cherish every single second of it. And it's kind of interesting now in the last five or six years, you see a lot of private equity and venture capital money in the food world, mm-hmm. like tons of it. Big brands that you know, whether it's Sweet Green or Cha Cha Matcha or yeah. whatever, these like super cool, mm-hmm. you know, things that are like pumped full of that type of money. Yeah. And you see the like leapfrogging effect that that has on like the growth of the business. In my opinion, in our world, in our business, there's no way to skip that. Mm. And if you do, you compromise something really serious at some level. Yeah. It's like, it's a, that's a real factor. Yeah. And so that's always something that I did not envy about the food industry. Like, here's something like your name is on the door. Yep. And my name is on the door too. But when I make a thousand t shirts, I can kind of breathe and let it sell. Yeah, yeah. Totally. You can't. Now we got to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> every day because the ice cream goes bad. <laughs> well, you, or it's sold. Yeah, it's sold or like, it yeah, right. Yeah. So you, you know, that's part of that pursuit of excellence right. all the time. You keep on working at it. It, the other side of it, and what you said is true, but the other side of it is that you always have another opportunity to do it again. Mm-hmm. So you can think about it that way. Yep. So it drives you to reinvent or to just revisit your... Yeah, tweak and tweak and tweak. Yeah. Or just even like I didn't do it right that time. Mm-hmm. So you have a chance to do it right again. Right. You know. So if you do a run of shirts and they get um, damaged or screwed up or some, some part of the design's not right, your screens aren't, you know, the kerning's off slightly or whatever it mm-hmm. is, you made the run and then you did the run and then it's out there and you're like, well, I'm not going to reprint that again. Or maybe right. you are. You know, no, but, but it's out there, yeah. And then, I'm not going to recall them and start right. Again, right. And then you're like, that's out there in the world. And now, like, am I going to do another run? No, we didn't schedule another run of that. So, like, that's it. And that's, that's it. it. Yep. So, in our world, um, you know, the product is out there. It's a little different now with photos and things like that. As social media has affected the food world, as it's affected everything, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, those kinds of factors. So, it's a bit like Broadway. Where like every totally. night you're performing. Yeah, I think about Broadway occasionally. I'm not. I'm like, I've been living in New York for 20 years, and um, I have my aversions. I was walking to your office today, <laughs> yeah. and like being on Broadway, the street, and uh-huh. being like, as New Yorkers, we all have our different relationships to this place in Soho. It's like can be very aggravating as a New Yorker because mm-hmm. you're just trying to get somewhere, and there's all these people. Yeah. But then I live not far from here, and I'm like sometimes I come down here, and I'm like, but this is why we moved here. Mm-hmm. It's like because of this place and like the way that it feels and that when you go to see a Broadway show, mm-hmm. as corny as the Lion King could be yeah. in some ways, like you can't put up a Broadway show unless you really are putting it on the table as uh-huh. far as the quality of what you do, set design, music, everything. And like even the worst Broadway show I've ever seen has been amazing. Yeah. Like in its own way has like really just had excellence in some form or fashion, mm-hmm. you know, right. and that's what's amazing. And that's why people still want to put up with the shithole that is New York City that's like a totally dysfunctional mess. Right. You know, I lived in Germany uh-huh. and I'm just like, yo, the shit works over there. Like it's also like very sterile and can be Berlin? really dry. Uh, I was living in Heidelberg, but I okay. traveled in Germany quite uh-huh. a bit and and I'm German. Like that's okay. what my hair, Morgenstern is a German name. Yes. And so 
Um, and I, lo- I loved it there. I understand why people don't like it there, but I love the fact that it just like functions so well. Mm. And like they just do things correctly. Right. They don't hash it out. Yeah. Ever. Whether right. they're telecom fixing the phones or whatever. Bill- Even art studio is like tight. On point. Yeah. Tight. Okay. Yeah. So let's go back to Danielle. Mm-hmm. Now I continue to work in food. I helped friends of mine open their own places mm-hmm. and like did things like that and had more connections so I could kind of bounce around a little bit more and traveled and went back to Europe and then came back and, you know, kept kind of doing stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I don't, I mean, I, I never used to talk about this, but now I think it's like an important uh, factor is that like I don't have any means and like my family's not around. So I'm in New York solo and like my family's not around mm-hmm. in my life. They haven't been in my life for a long time. So... I, you know, I'm like, whatever decisions I make are like, I got to figure it out and I got to deal with it. Like whatever that is. When you left, did you have the next job that you were going to? Typically? Yeah. It's hard. You know, now I have, I have 50 people working for me. I'm 41. Um, I own the business by myself. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I talk to young people who come to work for me now, you know, I tell them when you go to work for someone, whether you're working for me or anyone else, especially in our world where you work more than 40 hours a week. Yep. So automatically that equation means that you are sacrificing your lifestyle, mm-hmm. like period. Yeah. That means you're not going to the movies, you're not going to brunch, whatever mm-hmm. it is, or seeing your family or whatever it is, right? So you are... <laughs> you tell them that straight off, like... Well, they know that. Yeah, I mean, they know. And, and I interview, my interview process is so much more rigorous than it used to be. Like for anyone in a management level, sous, sous chef or pastry chef or manager at all, it's like... I interview for like weeks. Oh, wow. I'm just like, I don't care how bad we need it filled. It's like not even worth it. Mm -hmm. If you make the wrong pick, Mm -hmm. it's like so bad. So just like bad for the business. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that the person's bad, but it's like if it's not the fit, then you're going to have. You're injecting something wrong into the system. And it's just going to create problems, Mm -hmm. you know. So, but I tell people, you know. When you're working for someone, then you may think or feel like you're giving that person or that business your time. And you are. You know, you fulfill responsibilities and tasks need to be completed and things need to be executed. But the, the day that you put in your notice and that day comes, I, only, I got one guy who's been with me for 11 years. Everybody else, they're gonna, some of them come back and they leave and so on. But you put in your notice and you close the chapter the time that you spent working for me becomes your time and it's your experience and it's whatever you take with you. Mm -hmm. And I really think that that is a very important message for young people to understand now. Don't come talking to me about how much money you think you should make or whatever the case is. I pay as competitively as I can Mm -hmm. as a business and I guarantee you that you will learn while you work for me. I will expose you and I will teach you and I will coach you and I will support you and I will put a lot of energy into you Mm -hmm. and you need to open yourself up to the fact that you don't know you know listen right be present be on time speak honestly yeah and then let go of the outcome Nick nails it here with his observation when you join a company you are contributing and bringing something into that company during the time that you're there. So you spend two years there, you give two years there. But once you leave, everything you've learned and experienced there is yours to keep forever. Don't take that lightly. 
And how you approach your time there is everything. Always question yourself and ask, what am I getting out of this? Not even just in the overall job experience, but even down to the day-to-day level. What can I learn out of this opportunity? What can I learn today? What can I learn tomorrow and next week? And don't mistake this for pretentiousness either and think, what can I possibly know more of since I'm already there? No, no. Understand that you are always in a position where you can be better. So figure out how you can do that with what's in front of you. This may seem contradictory to the empowerment era that we live in today and what we sometimes preach on the business of hype. Knowing your value is definitely important, but there's a difference between empowerment and entitlement. To this day, even the OGs who have been on this podcast recognize their value, but still find the humility to be in a constant state of learning. Why do you think younger people have a hard time grasping that, that what I learned from you will be mine when I leave? They have this feeling of like, I'm bringing this is your shit. Yeah. Or like, I'm coming here and I'm bringing bringing you. you. Yeah. I think in general, I mean, maybe like as far as Western culture Mm -hmm. is concerned, we have an idea that um, there's some different like expediency to a gratification. Mm We're like, we're going to like, I see that thing there and I want that now. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not really fun. You know, I think about like when I was young and like I wanted that thing and then like I couldn't get that thing. And then you got to like sacrifice some amount of whatever it is to get to that thing. It's really hard to hear that when you're young, that like it's so much more um, rewarding to get the thing after you've had to, you know, really sacrifice for it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever, like, of course, working hard is like certain things require different levels of hard work, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's like really relative. Yeah. I've been working in the 60 to 80 hour a week range um, since I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So like to me, I'm like, of course, like you work hard and there's different levels of working hard. I think yeah. more about, you know, the difference between struggling and being challenged. Mm-hmm. Like those are two different things. Yeah. And, you know, so putting myself and my team in a position to be challenged mm-hmm. but not to struggle yeah and that's like really critical leadership thing that I digest a lot now mm-hmm. is like is my team struggling or are they being challenged and do they do we have enough resources right to be able to put them in that position There's a very fine line between those two things I think so yeah they're different mm-hmm. you know it's not the same yeah. um so yeah like all of those different you know aspects to it and I think that when I went to go work for Paul Liebrandt, you know, it was an unfortunate circumstance that like, I've known the guy for so long and he's like, he's really intolerable. And not like, <laughs> he really, he knows that. Okay. Like, okay. I just had just lunch spend with him. time like bigging him up and then. <laughs> he's the man. Okay. Don't get me wrong. But this is, uh, this is something that I think he struggles with and it's, <laughs> it's made it really hard for him to continue to be employed. And I think that, um, you know, I I probably kick someone out of my store like three times a week when like a customer is like not understanding like what goes on in the store. <laughs> what what is there to understand Just, or not understand? Well, it's it's like Morgan Stern's the parlor that we opened last October on the corner of House and LaGuardia mm-hmm. is a big corner. It was formerly Silver Spurs Diner, which was there for twenty three years. Silver Spurs have been around since seventy eight, the year yeah. I was born. 
and um, I'm the third tenant in the building since the building was built. Wow. Right? And like for me, like I don't come from anything. Like I work minimum wage my whole life and I own the business. I own the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And like everything I have is there. And I care so deeply about what we do and like the reality of the challenges that we face to execute against this thing that I care about. So like if somebody comes in and they're just like really out of line, I'm just like, I just don't want your energy in here. Mm -hmm. I don't care. And I'll, man, I mean... Maybe I'm a nice guy. Maybe I'm not a nice guy. But when that comes near me, I shut it down so fast. Mm-hmm. I don't. I have no tolerance. I do not care about customer service in those moments. Like you are disrespecting this thing that is like my grail. Yeah. You like the only option is to be ejected, mm-hmm. and it happens very fast. Three times a week on average. If I'm wow. really at the register and that, and like someone's breaking the rules, it's when people are breaking the rules. And like uh-huh. we make rules because we have to function this thing. Yeah. We tra- like right now between both stores, we're transacting like 16, 17,000 people a week. Uh-huh. Like it's like the airport, man. Like yeah. it's not a game. Right. Like, and there's re- like we got to do things so that things function properly. Mm-hmm. And when somebody starts trying to like get wild with it, and I'm like, I have 88 flavors on the board every day. Uh huh. And we make everything in the store from zero. Mm-hmm. We make everything from scratch. I write all the recipes. I write all the flavors. And like today, like today, my menu is bananas. Like I, it's nuts. And people come in and they're just like, this is fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes. And it came out of my mind uh-huh. and it comes out of my ass. Yeah. And I cleaned the store and I pay for the stuff and we buy the best ingredients from all over the world and we put it on the board every day. Mm-hmm. It's not a joke. So like, fam, go find another 88 flavors. Go find 87. Go find 86. <laughs> go blah. Go, you're going to get down to 31. Right. Like, get out of here. <laughs> right. Respect what this is. What's a rule? Give me a rule that gets violated all the time. We have a Sunday bar. And it's the only seating on that side of the store. And so like there's times when the Sunday bar is not open and people just be like, I'm going to sit here. And there's a sign and it's like, this is not closed and because it's not staffed. And if it's not staffed, it can't be open. And that's where the cooking equipment is. And there's like all kinds of health code stuff. And like, listen, I appreciate that you want to sit down, but you can't. Mm -hmm. And the DOB codes in New York, Department of Building Codes are super complicated about seating. And like, there's all these other things. So I'm just like, guy, there's a sign. And the sign says you can't sit here and like that's it. And then mm-hmm. someone will just like post up over there and then we've already been like, I'm sorry, but you can't sit here. And mm-hmm. then someone gets indignant. And like recently it was like a guy who was a VC guy who was like, I invest in all kinds of hospitality. And I was just like, bruh, what you're talking about right now has nothing to do with nothing. Mm-hmm. You cannot sit in this seat right now. Yeah, You have violated the sign. Two of my employees have asked you nicely to leave. Like what, in what reality does that function? Do you think it's an ice cream store? I, I don't know what that is. I don't, uh-huh. but I have no tolerance for it. Right. I sacrifice too much of my life to do this, mm-hmm. like leveraging, constantly leveraging to the mm-hmm. next step and then like having to be there and be the key man, right. you know, in those situations. So I started it. <clears throat> yeah. When did the seed start actually? I opened a restaurant with a buddy of mine in the meatpacking district called Five Ninth. It's okay. not there anymore. Like across the street from the old pasties. Okay. And, um, they had like a little patio in the back that opened out onto, I think it was West 12th. And um, I don't remember why, but I got the idea that we should have an ice cream cart there. The guys that own that place, they're dumb. And they were just like, that doesn't make any sense. I was like, all right, I don't know. And then I just was like, 
I think that shit would work. Mm-hmm. Like over there in that neighborhood at that time, 2005, 2006, when like pastis was like popping. Yeah. It would have been ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It would have printed cash. Cash. Yeah. They just were just dummies. And so I didn't stay there. I would like was there for a few months. But um, then like years later, I opened my first restaurant in Fort Green in Brooklyn called the General Green. So that was 2008. Mm-hmm. And then I was in business with a guy who owned the building. And that was my first deal where like I was responsible for the whole operation. And um, I did a deal with him where I got equity after a certain amount of time, okay, a couple of years, and I took a pay cut to do that. Mm-hmm. The moral of the story is: um, don't be motivated by money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like it's it's a measure. It almost of never things. leads to good things. No, right? it doesn't. It doesn't, man. Yeah. It really doesn't. I always had to keep enough cash in my bank account that just like sat there and never. I dude, I never took vacations for so long. I would just work every. Like six days, always. I never would take time off, and then just like have money in the bank, and then like if my job wasn't working for me because it wasn't like getting me the experience that I wanted or whatever, then I could be like, and put in my notice the way I'm supposed to. But it was never about the check, mm-hmm. whatever size the check was. It was never about that. I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it because I wanted to have that experience. The check is never the be-all and end-all. Chasing the bag will never result in what's really fulfilling in the grand scheme of things. Yes, you'll be good for a minute, but think about the long term. What's next? What you do for the bag may actually hold you back from making the next big step. Remember that episode with Mr. Cartoon? Would we have gotten the opportunity to see those amazing Air Force Ones and Cortezes if he had agreed to be the $10,000 tattoo talent at a Nike event? What I'm trying to say is, would you want to stay in a role that pays amazing but keeps you from doing what you want? Would you want to take on a project that doesn't quite connect with what you really stand for or believe in? And if you can't tie it back to what you want in your core, then why do it? And don't get me wrong. If money is at your core, then sure, go ahead. But if there's even an ounce of something more that drives you, then reconsider. Money should be the result, not the defining motivator. Nick was working with some of the greatest chefs and restaurants in New York City. And when you're at that level, it's easy to think, I've made it. But if you heard Nick, he was actually counting each and every day until his last day. It's then that you realize it's more than money. The food industry is highly competitive. So what moves you higher up isn't just what's on your last pay stub. It's the experience you have and what you create from those jobs. Learn and soak up everything. This holds true for almost any industry that you choose to work in. So... When I took, like, I had this opportunity to go work for Paul Ebrant to go be the pastry chef at Corton, and I chose to go open this, like, weird little restaurant in Brooklyn, and, like, all my guys that I had, my contemporaries were just like, what is he doing? Mm-hmm. Like, and then I opened, like, all-day cafe. Long before Two Hands or, like, any of that kind of stuff, we <laughs> opened this place that was, like, good ingredients, good coffee. We were the first restaurant to buy a La Marzocco espresso machine in New York. It was, like... Oh, wow. Like, back... I didn't even know. I just was, like, yo, I think we, that's the shit. I need one of those things. <laughs> and, like, got right. one of those, you know? 
and learned about coffee and those kind of things. And the, the restaurant was really successful. And then I did a deal with the, my business partner was a landlord. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, there's like that little room in the front with the dirt floor where the meters are. It's like probably 100 square feet, mm-hmm. maybe smaller even. It was like maybe 8 by 10. And I was like, let me rent that on the side. And okay. then I'm going to put a little ice cream cart in front of the store. And he laughed at me. He was like, yo, you dumb. He was like, what are you talking about? Whatever, sure. It had never been done. It didn't exist in that way. And then I got the licenses to do it from the city. That was the first thing. I had to like figure that out. Like, how are you allowed to do that? Make sure that we weren't going to get shut down, Uh you know? And then um, I built a little thing. Mm -hmm. I bought the ice cream machine. Were you already making the bomb ice cream? Is that like the impetus for it? I mean, I always had made ice cream in restaurants, but like not, I mean, I didn't. (laughs) <laughs> I, I didn't understand. Uh, I knew that we could make good product, but uh-huh. I just bought this machine. <laughs> I still have the machine. <laughs> it's still the machine that we use. Yeah? Yep, to this day. And um, I'm like a bit of a, I like, I like technical things and mechanical mm-hmm. things. And I'm, I was an auto mechanic when I was in high school. I put myself through culinary school working on cars. And so um, I really have a strong love and passion for vintage Japanese cars. Okay. Datsuns primarily. Yeah. And so I don't know, like just like f- nerding out on like what the machines were and like which ones were going to really get me this thing that I want to do the thing I wanted. And then I bought this machine. Now I think about it. I'm like, yeah, I never had used one of those ones. Uh-huh. And I bought like a pretty serious machine. I bought it on eBay. It was in San Diego. It was ten grand, just like a lot of money. <laughs> ice cream machine. That's a lot of ice cream. Mm, not. No. I mean, it's actually not. Like I bought it. I bought it oh five in oh eight, so it was a few years old. Uh-huh. And um, now those machines are more than that. <laughs> I could sell my machine now for more than I bought it for. The oh five models. Yeah, though. because I think it's like like I wanted to buy another one last year, and because I was like, I, that's the one that I want. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't, I was like, what the hell? They're like 15 grand. <laughs> Old ones, wow, you know? this is a whole other it's, yeah, whatever. Yeah, No, I mean, the ice cream machine thing is all, ice cream equipment is its own racket. Damn. There's certain guys in the U.S. that do it. And then when you really need the equipment, you need it. And it's expensive. It's like a lot of money, you know, tr- changing hands. And they always get it for less, you know? So mm-hmm. they're making, it's like a used car kind of situation, yeah. you know? It's kind of like a used exotic car dealer mm-hmm. is what it's like. Yeah. Anyway, I bought that machine, and then I put that thing down there. I had one freezer and one fridge, and then I built this little ice cream cart with motorcycle wheels and, like, all this crazy stuff. It's, like, really wacky little cart. It was, like, really wacky, mm-hmm. but it just had character. Yeah. And um, I put that thing out there in spring of 09, and it was, like, pow. Just yeah. was, like... What was it called? We just called it green ice cream back part then because the it was thing, part of yeah, the restaurant. Right. I hadn't done any kind of idea of like brand, brand or okay. anything like that. But dude, it was so successful. That's ultimately what split me and my partner because it was mine. And it was like printing. Caking. <laughs> the <laughs> restaurant was yeah. doing well too. It was good for the restaurant. Right. It really was. But, but you were paying rent on that little space and he saw you making hand over fist. I mean, it's all relative, you know. Yeah, but it's not like I bought a boat or something. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But I did open Morgenstern's off of that. So Off of that cart. Yeah. I ran the cart for two and a half years. And well, then Explain why it split your partnership. Why wasn't he happy for you? I don't know. I think he just, like, he wasn't really a restaurant guy. I wound up suing him. This is interesting. I sued him in, this the, is interesting. Yeah, I sued yeah. him in the Supreme Court in downtown Brooklyn. 
because he didn't want to honor the equity deal that we had done. And we had operating agreement and it was like airtight. Uh-huh. And um, he just was like, nah, not worth anything. And when I left then, I think, you know, you don't want to like pat yourself on the back or anything, but I did a lot. Like you do all these little things every day that hold the business together, you know, yeah. good or bad, like right. whatever it is. Nothing's perfect in any mm-hmm. of the operations, you know, and Steve Jobs died and like Apple's not the same. Mm-hmm. Multinational, most valuable company in the world. And like he would, he was doing something. Yes. Like who knows? Single-handedly, like, yeah. What was he doing every day? Right. He was eating his oatmeal and going to work. And <laughs> right. like what was he doing it did every something. day? But yeah. it did something, Definitely. you know, and that's a real thing. So I think it just was like really hard for him to run the business after I left because uh-huh. he just wasn't going to like cover the details the same way. And then he just was like, the business is losing money and... He tried to open an ice cream business there. And there were press releases that came out saying that he was using my recipes, like referencing my recipes. The New York Times called my ice cream the holy grail of ice cream. Mm. So that was like a big, it, it had Amazing. credibility. Yeah. It would, you know. And then he tried to open ice cream. Yeah, very when I close, left. Right? In the same, <laughs> what do you mean? Like wow, right there, right you know? There. But that's fine. I, th- that kind of thing doesn't bother me. I'm like, okay. you know, do you, that's what New York is all about. You know, like somebody wants to open ice cream store right next to me. Like I don't own the real estate. Yeah. Yeah, Like what it is. This is what, what am I going to cry about it or go and be like, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. Shit is not fair, bro. Right. Period. (laughs) It wasn't fair when I got here. Uh Like, so (laughs) it won't be fair forever. It's not going to be fair. (laughs) You know, like that's just going to be what it is. So yeah. So I, I took him to court. I was like, nah, like you owe me money because of the, like we have a deal and I owned, I owned a big piece of the business. Mm -hmm. I didn't own half, but I owned a big piece of the business. And so we went to court in downtown Brooklyn and the judge, um, he was like a pretty famous judge, uh, Jewish guy. And, um, I had researched who he was. I have friends who are lawyers who are like in law school and Uh I was like, I'm going through this thing. I didn't go to college. I don't even like, I know that this isn't right and he's Uh like stiffing me in whatever way and hired a lawyer and then went in and had to go figure out how to deal with this. And um, I went to see the judge and the judge isn't, we got to go to a hearing with the judge and then the hearing time comes and goes and then the judge sends one of his clerks out and like all of his clerks are wearing the yarmulke and they've got the tassels and the whole and i'm like this is weird like there's all these like jewish like law clerks mm-hmm. we're downtown brooklyn and um they, he goes um the honorable schmidt david schmidt we're terribly sorry but the time is gone and the union closes the courtroom um we're gonna go and meet at the connecticut muffin um around from the subway i'm just like look at my lawyer so What's happening? Right. And then, you Am know, I'm punked right now. Yeah, my <laughs> partner's there yeah. with his lawyer. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is going on here? This is like, I'm just like, yo, this is weird. Then we go to Connecticut Muffin. Yeah. They go, the clerks go up ahead and they like clear the joint. You're kidding it's me. It's so weird, bro. To do this. You, we, and this is a Connecticut Muffin that's like downtown Brooklyn, like a little ratchet. Uh huh. And the, the, the dining area of the Connecticut muffin is like the mezzanine. You have to yep. like go up upstairs, the stairs. Yeah. And they like somehow rush up the stairs and the stairs are like a ladder. And they <laughs> go up there and they like clear space for like nine. I'm not joking. This was so weird. And then we have to like buy something, right? And the judges, <laughs> and the judges like, nobody want, buy me anything. Like, want an iced tea? Like, he's like, no, you, you can't yeah, buy you anything can't buy for the judge. judge. Yeah, and yeah. then I'm like buying a bottle of water and going, I'm looking at my lawyer and I'm just like going, bro, this is weird. And he's like, don't worry about it. He's like, this guy's great. Like he knew the judge too. He had heard a case in front of the judge before. So 
we go in Connecticut Muffin, <laughs> right. lay out our case, so on and so forth. We get another hearing date three months later uh-huh. where my partner has to produce a lot of the, do- he was the tax matters partner, he had to produce a lot of documents. We go to court again. Same thing happens again. The clerk closes. We miss the time. <laughs> then another clerk comes out and he goes, you're going to go to Chambers. So we go to the judge's Chambers. It's a beautiful office overlooking Borough Hall, downtown Brooklyn. Be- you can, the view is crazy. And um, he's got some big like conference table and there's like all these lawyers leaving and they're kind of talking about that they've wrapped up some like $52 million you know, um, settlement over some like insurance, something or other. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, oh, we're arguing <laughs> over a restaurant here. <laughs> right. And then he goes, oh, come in, guys, come in. Good to see you. He's an older guy. He's probably in his like late 60s. Um, I want to show you guys something. And he, behind his desk, there's a plexiglass um, like frame case that's kind of like a full size. It's like five or six feet tall. And in it is like what looks like some kind of an outfit, like mm-hmm. a pair of pajamas or something that's okay. like starched and it's like flat, like striped, like white and blue. And it's little, though. It's, like, not big. Uh It's, like, for a kid or something. And he goes, that's my father's uniform from Auschwitz. Come, come, look. (laughs) Come, look at it. You and your partner. My, yeah. Yeah. And then the lawyers. The lawyers. Look, look. (laughs) And we're all just, like, and you go back there and you look at it. Behind his desk, you're, Uh like, everyone's, like, kind of crowding in. And then um, you're just, like, whoa. And then you just go out. And then he goes, so... What are we here to talk about today? And man, you want to like set the tone. Yeah. <laughs> he set the tone. Right. And we settled like 10 minutes later. Wow. And he did this really funny thing actually that I've heard about this before, but it's the split the baby thing. And he's like, so you're saying that it's not worth anything and you can't pay him. You know, my partner's saying you can't pay me anything. And I immediately was like, if it's worth nothing, I'll buy it. I'll give you 100 grand for it right now. Right. I'll buy it right now mm-hmm. if it's worth nothing. And the judge says, well, if it's worth nothing and it's causing you all distress, you would probably take the offer from your business partner. And no, 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 of course, he's not going to do that. And I know he's not going to do that. He owns a building and he's very attached to it in that way. And then the judge says, okay, so if you aren't going to take his offer for this much to buy you, then, you know, and then he has us write our numbers down on post-it notes. Uh-huh. And give it to him. Uh-huh. And then he goes, okay, uh, <laughs> you're too high and you're too low. And then we go again. And we write our numbers on our post-it notes. And then he finally goes, okay, we got a number, 52,000. That's wow. it. And which was a lot more than actually what I thought I was going to get in that like situation. Like a game show. So it's like name. <laughs> it was pretty, right. I mean, listen, in my world, for all the time you spend working and doing all this other stuff, like three or four times a year, you have an experience where you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> this is really bizarre. So... I took the I took that money and whatever money I made from my ice cream cart and tried to go open an ice cream shop in Manhattan and couldn't get a landlord to talk to me because I had no credit no I didn't really have any money uh-huh. and so I opened a restaurant because I found kind of like a distressed uh, place where they had been denied their liquor license and they had a lot of problems and so I opened a restaurant there. Which location is this? It was on Fifth Street between A and B in the East Village in Alphabet City. It was called Goat Town. Okay. Opened it with a buddy of mine, partner. We got a liquor license there. Um, he left amicably after like six months. It was too hard. He, it really was. It's very challenging to do this. You have mm-hmm. to be willing to just like do whatever it takes. And I stayed there and I worked that business and I didn't want to work that business. I really didn't. And I worked that business for, I mean, two years solid of working as like the GM mm-hmm. and like working the floor, running food, just doing whatever had to be done. 
Um, and I turned the business around. We opened in 2010. We nearly would have filed for bankruptcy by the end of 11 and then end of 12. You know, I made, I think I probably made like 190 grand that year and like just all of it was in the bank. Mm -hmm. And then I moved it from one account to the other and went to go try to find Morgan Stern's location. And then the bank was like, what are you doing moving the money around? And I was like, I gotta, I'm gonna try to go do something else. (laughs) And they were like, well, you know, do you need any money? And I was like, yeah, I need some money. I don't think I'm gonna get it from you. Uh And they wrote me an SBA loan. Oh, wow. For a certain, and and, you know, the moral of that story was Uh that like I kept my books super tight. Mm And when the bankers, uh, this was Chase, when bankers came in from Ohio and they just like sat in my tiny little basement office in my restaurant and they were like, can you show us a uh, balance sheet, P&L, cash flow? Right. And like I produced it all instantly. Uh-huh. That's the other reason I won my court case, by the way, because I have like all my stuff. Documented. Like, yeah. Tight. And right. so just like tight. Like today, I can hit print on my numbers today mm-hmm. and they're tight. Yeah. From within seven days. Uh-huh. Most small businesses, it's like they can't even get their taxes done. You know right. what I mean? Because yep. they're like going back the last year, nothing's done. So, um, yeah. So the bank, then boom, they just like I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. You weren't even trying to get the loan. No, nah, but like I didn't. I needed more money. Mm-hmm. I really did need more money. And um, but I was just like, I'm just gonna go spend what I got, and I'll figure it out. I always have done that. You know, I build my own stores and yeah. I do all of my design and and value engineer everything. So. Um, yeah, and then you know we signed this lease. We, I mean, I was in like a all kinds of bidding wars for locations. Um, this was 2013, so the market was in a different place back then mm-hmm. than it is now. It's a lot softer now, but yeah, yeah, I just didn't want to be in the middle of nowhere, and so I chose that location on Rivington Street, mm-hmm. like as carefully as I could. I pushed as close to Nolita as I could afford to, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like I wanted the old Miss Ho space, the fight store uh-huh. right there. That was rolling over around that time. Okay. And that was like almost double the price. And I'm, I'm lucky. That's a stone's throw from there. So it's, it's right there, but yeah. it's like, like that's a corner, right. you know what I mean? And like, but it, everything happens for a reason and mm-hmm. I'm lucky I like landed where I did. And Rivington, like the vibe on Rivington was kind of weird back then. You only really had Freemans yep. in that. And then like, I mean, we brought a lot of energy to the block. Greenfingers is there. Mm-hmm. Those guys are awesome. Maison Kansuni is there now. And yep. things just changed after we got there because an ice cream store, if it does well, brings a lot of traffic. Yeah, It's just volume. Mm-hmm. And like that's what retailers need. What's really crazy is we're having like a... Uh, a kind of just another resurgence of bananas business because Supreme put their temporary store like right over mm-hmm. there and then the Vans store is yeah. there and the camper store is there. Right. And like I look at those things and I'm like, those guys wouldn't have come here. They would not have come over here because Bowery is fucked up. Yep. I do the business mission, on, yeah. well, I do business over there. It is fucking shithole. <laughs> that block is a disaster. Yeah. It just is. There's no two ways around it. It's a mega thoroughfare for the Manhattan Bridge. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's gnarly, dude. Yep. The Bowery ain't cute. <laughs> really, really not. Yeah. So those guys are in over there. They got good deals on all that real estate too. Mm-hmm. Probably the, the corner on Spring is probably mad expensive for Supreme, but that's a dope store for them. Yeah. It's really cool. Yep. Part of the allure of building a brand is the physical experience, especially and maybe exclusively when it comes to food. After all, food is maybe the last sensory experience that technology and social media has not compromised. If you want to taste something, 
There is no amount of digital marketing savvy that can replace you actually going there to try it for yourself. So for a food business or any business, the way you brand, how you communicate your story, and how your product or service is experienced is everything. It doesn't matter whether you're working out of your basement or studio or looking for a storefront shop. You can have the best ideas and the greatest products in the world, but all of those ideas need to be housed somewhere that vibes with you and your brand vision. There's a saying in business, the three most important aspects to success are location, location, and location. And I'm not just talking city state, not even neighborhood. I'm talking down to the block, down to which side of the street you're on, down to the number on the building. Nick's Rivington Street location is now a New York City landmark. And it was a pretty sleepy area before he got there. It was a sort of dead space between the high-priced and bustling neighborhoods of Nolita and the Lower East Side. There's no science behind finding the right spot. It's all gut feeling. But even when you figured it out, it doesn't mean the building owner is just going to pick up the phone and call you. Ice cream shop in New York City when it's freezing five months out of the year? Any landlord would think this is a failure waiting to happen. So how does Nick go from an ice cream cart in Brooklyn to creating a landmark in downtown Manhattan? Let's listen. So you were able, how did you convince the landlord of Rivington? Oh man. Was that a I worked, challenge? Yo, I worked for this guy. I worked for this guy named Simon Oren who owns, he owns like 25 restaurants in New York. You've never heard of him, but he's, he's amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. he, own, he owns French Roast. Okay. L'Express. Oh yeah, that. Sushi Samba. Got you. All those. Got you. And I worked he's for him. He's got Park Avenue owns. Like. He did, I mean, he kind of flips it around and stuff, but he's, a really interesting guy, Israeli guy, who started selling falafel in Central Park. Oh, okay. Like, and has parlayed. I mean, he's he's very, very powerful mm-hmm. and, and like commands respect, especially with landlords. Yeah, he okay. knows how to do those deals. And um, yeah, I worked for him for a long time, and and um, I always had a good relationship with him. Mm. I can't really explain it, but he liked me, and I worked hard for him, and. I just maintained a really good relationship with him. And um, I had been in a bidding war for a location in the East Village um, that's now a coffee shop, still the same coffee shop that I was fighting over this space for on Stuyvesant across from the church right off of 2nd Avenue. Mm -hmm. It's called Third Rail Coffee Place. And I wanted that store. It had been a little gelato shop before, and I wanted it really bad. And um, just like dealing with brokers and... I had put in offers on a lot of stuff, but that one wasn't coming through. I was like really frustrated. And then um, that little store on Rivington had not been on the market. Uh-huh. When you're looking for a space in New York, like brick and mortar, you know all of them. Mm-hmm. You're just like scouring Craigslist. You're walking yeah. the streets. Like you see what's vacant. You figure out where the broker's at. It was mm-hmm. different back then too. Now, all this stuff is like really available online. Yeah, I get like lot, nine yeah. emails a day from uh-huh. somebody telling me this space and that space and whatever. They're desperate now. <laughs> yeah, they, well, yeah, it's definitely changed. But so, yeah, like I walked past that thing on Rivington and um, my assistant at the time was a, a kid from Thailand. This kid, Max, amazing. Oh, God, I wish he still worked for me. Max, if you're listening, come back. <laughs> He's the best. And um, he would like come around with me and see you know the spaces and um i saw the space on rivington i walked past it and i was just like got the chills i was like this is it 
And I just knew. I don't mm-hmm. even know. It's just like one of these intuitive things. And yep. then um, right next to it is a place called Lee Can Designs, which is a place that sells um, kind of like antiques, like Chinese antiques. Mm-hmm. They've been around for like 40 years. And they have a little bench outside. And we were sitting on the bench. And Max was sitting next to me. And I was like, this is it. Like, mm-hmm. And Max was like, I can see the line, chef. And like he was like, I could see the line. Damn. And then... I had only just called the broker, like left a message, uh-huh. but we both were just like, this is it. Like, this is, it was so weird. We just like knew. And then the landlord, the broker was like, uh, I still know the broker really well. I actually really like this guy, Jean-Pierre, but um, he was just like, I don't know. These guys want to put in a juice business here. And um, I don't know yet. I don't mm-hmm. know. What's your story? I'm like, I ain't got no story. I got no more concerns. Nobody knows nothing. Right. So then, um, like three days later, I get a phone call from Oren. And Oren is like, hey, Nick. And like, Oren doesn't call my cell. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And he's like, I'm like, Oren's calling. It's like eight o'clock at night. I'm like, uh-huh. what the hell? I hadn't talked to Oren in a couple of years. I always would see him when he opened a new place. He would invite me. I'd go check it out. And um, he then he's like, Nick, uh, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm good. What's going on, Oren? And he goes, okay, a little like small talk. And then he's like, so uh, did you uh, put in an offer on a location on Rivington? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yesterday. Yeah, I did. And he's like, no, the guy that owns that space is like my best friend. I know him for 30 years. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, so uh, what should I tell him? And I'm like, I, I don't know. What do you mean? What should I, What right. should you tell him? Tell him whatever you think you should tell him. He went back and told the landlord, rent, was, yeah. rent to this guy. Like, Amazing. Do it. You never know, man. Uh-huh. You never know what's going on. Don't fuck with your boss. <laughs> yeah. You never know. For real. Yep. You don't know what doors they could be opening or closing for you later in your life. Yeah. For real. Like that goodwill got me my store. Yeah. I would not be sitting here having this interview with you. Well, you would have found another space. I don't know. <laughs> and it might, you never know, man. Right. These little things, you never know what's going to happen. You yeah. really don't. So, um, yeah, then we got the space and um, we got a good deal on it. And it was like the right size mm-hmm. and it's double the the basement is double the ground floor. Oh, okay. And that was like important to us because we make everything on site. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you know, we built the store that winter. It was one of the coldest winters ever, thirteen to fourteen, and we had a steel floor and no, we had to take out the storefront, and that was like freezing cold. I did all the plumbing design and like was in there, and everyone on the block was like, "Yo, this guy's crazy." Like, he, <laughs> what is he? No, really, people were just like, "Yo, feel bad for you and, and they shit." Were, like, yeah, <laughs> or they're just they were just like ice cream. Like, right. what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And um, man, they all want to be my friend now. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, we then we built the store, and then we opened Friday of Memorial Day, two thousand fourteen, and um, we had a line out the door from the first time I opened the door to the store. The first what time. What constituted that line? Like, why? 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 Yeah. Is it because of the New York Times write-up from before? Like, people were waiting for your ice cream? Nah, that had been a long time. <laughs> that was four years. Yeah. So that did not translate. Okay. Um, I think what that did it? New York Magazine, uh-huh. the food editors at New York Magazine, I'd known for a long time, and they did a full two-page spread of this King Kong banana split that we still serve. And they were like fascinated. They were really fascinated by the fact that we serve five different vanillas. We don't serve one vanilla. We serve five different Mm -hmm. ones. We serve Madagascar vanilla, burnt honey vanilla, bourbon vanilla, French vanilla. And then we were probably serving angel food vanilla back then. I'm pretty sure. And so 
they were just like, this is crazy. Next level. Yeah. And then they wanted to do the banana split with all five vanillas on it. And that's what they did. And then I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time, though, in between. Like, I almost rented a space that was an ice cream shop on St. Mark's. I almost rented that store three years prior. Yeah. And um, I came really close to getting that store. And that would have been, that would have been good for me. Mm-hmm. But... Man, I have the book that I was using for like what I was going to do, designs and ideas. And like, bro, that would not have been good. Like, it would not (laughs) have been good for real. It was like not good. It was bad. And so I had to go through this other stuff of Uh running these restaurants and things to like understand what the brand needed to be. Yeah. So when we opened the doors that first day Mm -hmm. and like people came in and they saw it and they looked at it, they were like, damn. Like, I understood enough at that point how to communicate the feeling that mm-hmm. I wanted people to have when mm-hmm. they came in. So that's the thing. Did you have a book for this business? Mm-hmm. How, yep. how important is it to have that? I mean, you got to start to make rules uh-huh. for, like, the roadmap of what your brand is going to be. And for me, it manifests itself in, like, literal ways. Like, Literally. What, like what's in the book? Um, like all the language for the mill work is like really simple, but is really important. That's very important for what I do. The mill work. It's not complicated mill work in our store. That's the other thing. And you're not supposed to notice it, Uh but it communicates something. And, um, I think for me, we're, we're getting ready to write a book and we haven't, this is, it's been, I've been offered book deal like every year, every Mm -hmm. summer the publishers come and they're like, you should do a book. And I'm, my business is going to be six soon. And like, we should have done a book and been in Tokyo with the franchise and this and that and the other mm-hmm. thing. Um, but like, for me, I'm so interested in the path of exploration of what does it mean to serve ice cream in America in the 21st century. Mm. That's my mission. And that keeps me so engaged interesting period like that's all i think about all the time what does that mean and so not only like the product itself but like what is what does it mean now Mm -hmm. and then like what did it mean before Uh what did it mean a hundred years ago yeah like and there's like all if you start to really look at it and think about it there's like so many really um crystallizing factors in our history that Mm -hmm. like solidified ice cream as this like iconic um American representation of like every man, everything, indulgence, and like all of these different things are wrapped up in what it looks like when you see an image of a hot tin roof Sunday with a cherry on top. It like really um, communicates something, mm-hmm. and so so that's why like the millwork detail is kind of important. And like I've spent a lot of time looking at that and thinking about it, and it is written in stone, and it was put up the first way in the first store and I thought it was right then and I was proven correct and now that's like that's how we do it Mm -hmm. and so we built a new store five years later with the same playbook yeah I mean there's things are going to be different in every location because the locations are different so you have to like manage that and then there's going to be new challenges and new ways to express we have like one ceiling fan in the original store and in the big store is like way bigger and so the ceiling fan thing is different there and it became like a touch point for Mm -hmm an element of the design of the store. But, you know, it just like Morgan Stern's, the way that we design it and what it's supposed to look like, it's it's really supposed to um, make you trust 
the brand. Mm-hmm. It's like you're supposed to trust it. And yeah. so like the um, integrity of like the way we design the store is meant to make you feel that way. And then, you know, that's like step one. And then step two is like how we handle what's happening in the store every day. And mm-hmm. that's the hardest part. Yeah. That's the most challenging part of the business. And that's even before you think about like the recipe itself of what you're consuming. This you is know, like everything around it. So like for me, and I realize that I'm in the eye of my own tornado, but I really intuitively know like what the flavors are supposed to be. Okay. That, like, is that like the easy, that's the easy part? In a way, but it's also, I don't know how to, it's hard to explain, but it's like in the it's like the matrix Uh so the matrix to me is moving all the time but i continue to understand the way that the matrix is supposed to behave Mm -hmm. and so the matrix is the map Mm -hmm. and so all of the parts of the map have to be represented and then parts of the map need to get switched and moved around so that's how it's all it's like alive it's moving yeah um and so the way that the matrix is presented to the consumer um, will allow them to then like feel that energy from the brand mm. and that's where it lives but when you come into the store and if you look at the menu board it is literally black and white yep. and it's like this giant board yep. and so that makes you trust it interesting <laughs> this not you really like, analyze this mentally like it's my whole life <laughs> what else am i doing yeah <laughs> i am not at the beach how about the logo um was what that, about it? Is that was that like another strategic yeah. decision that like of course. Have different versions of the logo? The logo is so critical to any yeah. brand. Well, everything. And when I think of your business, I think the logo pops into my head. Maybe I'm a graphic designer, that's why, but it's uh, iconic to the brand. I mean, I care about design a lot. Mm-hmm. I do. So, but then it's also like I care about design in um, service of the mission of the brand. Mm -hmm. So like that's the way I think about it. The design has to be in service of our mission statement. Mm -hmm. So I don't design things for design's sake. Even the merch, we we sell a lot of merch. We sell a lot of Mm t-shirts, like a six-figure t-shirt business (laughs) is happening there, which is crazy for an ice cream store. Yeah. But that's, I, I love it. That's I wear sick. my brand every day. I love my. I wear my brand every wow. single day, and I love it. And so, your merch line is bigger than most clothing line businesses. <laughs> I mean, we just have continued to reinvest in it. Uh-huh. I don't take the money from the merch out. I put it back in the into merch. the merch. Got it, it. Just yeah. like, and then it gets bigger. And then the funny thing that happens with that is then you create these things that live as like a part of your narrative at moments in time. Mm -hmm. And then people just like associate that to the brand. And then people come in and they're like, are you going to make the long sleeve pink shirt again? And if they catch me, I'll be like, yeah, oh yeah, that shirt was cool. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you like that shirt. And they're just like, I got to have that shirt. And then I'll be like, oh, cool. Yo, we should make that pink shirt again. Uh And then we'll make 50 more of those and then we'll sell them. We don't mark it up like crazy. It's not like a, we try to make it like reasonably. T-shirts, 25 to $30, long sleeve, 45, 50 bucks. It Mm -hmm. should be like within the, it should be reasonably priced, you know? Um, And then quality of the production on that is something we've continued to hone in on. Like who's printing our stuff and like, can they do it well? It's Mm -hmm. like... I've never had a real problem with printing now that I think about it. Do you have a person that's in charge of apparel? It's me. <laughs> really? I mean, no, nah, we got, I mean, I definitely um, generate most of the ideas of uh-huh. what I want to do. Um, we love illustration, so we use that a lot mm-hmm. for the brand to help. 
with those hard straight lines that you see in the store. Yeah, right. To soften it up. helps yeah. to like, you know, just literally and figuratively animate it. Right. Um, so we do a lot of that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I have another, we'll, we're going to come up with another line in September. Like an, we'll just do like another release of new stuff. And mm-hmm. so we, I'm every day I'm like, oh yeah, like we should think about how we're expressing these different things that we're doing and like, what does that look like? But man, I'm telling you the merch sells, it's crazy. I thought we were talking to a food entrepreneur here, but turns out I'm also talking to a guy who's sitting on a six-figure t-shirt brand, and that's only the side business. At first glance, it might seem like an anomaly, but when you really break it down and look at what he's been able to build, it actually makes total sense. It would seem Morgan Stearns has everything going for it, right? Strong customer appreciation and following, great location, amazing press write-ups, celebrity sightings, tourist destination, It is the ice cream spot to visit. But most importantly, he can back all of that up with the product. In any business, product is king. In today's digital era, everything I just mentioned above can be achieved. You can have all of that glory. But to make it last, that's another story. If the product isn't king, all of that disappears. And at the end of the day, all of that hype is backed up with incredible product. Let's talk opportunity versus focus real quick. Book deals, expansions, franchises, global domination. If you do your job right, these opportunities will flow in like it's flowing in for Nick. But he's not concerned with that for now. He is obsessed with the idea of ice cream in America and what that image of a kid eating ice cream does to our psyche. I love that he's breaking down the transaction of buying ice cream to the deep psychological level. It's that tenacity that fuels everything else for the business. The ice cream, the pies, the take-home pints, and the t-shirt are all just expressions of that. If I can make a music analogy, ice cream is to Nick as the live performance is to Travis Scott. The music, the Astroland merch, the Nikes, Those are all the souvenirs to the experience. People want that record that they had this otherworldly experience after eating a cone. And everyone says retail is dying. Maybe they're right. The act of someone just casually walking into a store, looking for something and then purchasing it, that might be dead. But people being inspired by a visionary's creation and then wanting to be a part of it I don't think that feeling is going anywhere anytime soon. So I want to ask you this. You remember the feeling that you had, you told me about at Gramercy, where like you You quit on the 365th day, like you were counting the days. Right. Is when you wake up now, is it the polar opposite feeling? Almost, yeah. And that's a new feeling for me right now. Explain that feeling. Oh, that's a big one. (laughs) Um, was it sad? Like, how would you describe satisfaction or like contentness? No, 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 not even close. It's more just like, all right, now I know what we're going to do. So it's, it's like, going back to the matrix. It's like when Neo yes. sees everything moving. Yeah, slow yeah, yeah. Motion. It's actually similar to that. Right. Then I'm like, okay, so like now, you know, now you're just like, oh, I get it now. Mm-hmm. And then things become so clear but also very overwhelming because then you realize like 
I feel like a very strong sense of obligation to mm -hmm. the idea or the ideal of what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm on this mission to define what it means to serve ice cream in America in the 21st century. Like mm -hmm. that's my mission. And Morgan Stearns is successful. It makes money and I don't pay myself. I pay myself very little, just enough. I live right around the corner. I don't have a lifestyle that's crazy and like, all that I care about is like, are we going to be able to like get the mission to happen? Why don't you pay yourself? Well, because I own the whole thing. Uh -huh. And so like, I don't really, um, I just want the cash right there. And then I can like. Or the business first. And like, I pull the trigger on things where I'm just like, nah, we're doing that. And I want to do that that mm -hmm. way. And then like hiring and being able to pay my team well and like those kinds of things. And restaurant business, or food service business is a cash flow business. So mm -hmm. you want to have like cash on deck. So if I pay myself, usually it's like after taxes and then I'll be like, all right, we have some money. But right now I'm like, look, if I need some money for something personally, mm -hmm. then I can pay myself something for that. I don't want for anything in my life. I don't but like I separate my material desires or needs, whatever those things are from this other reality, but I'm living almost like a monastic reality of like, I'm on a mission to do this thing. And mm -hmm. every day I wake up and I'm like, we're going to do that thing. But I do it at a very deep level. And also um, I drive the van to make the deliveries twice a week if like my guys aren't doing it, then I do right now I'm doing that every week. And that's like not really the CEO job. No, but it also keeps me like really connected and I don't mind those hours. I'm like with two of my crew members that are like the backbone of what we do. Mm -hmm. They work the hardest. And so like being next to them is like important. It's like real, it is. And like people could tell me I should do this or that or the other thing. And I'm like, nah, man, I'm doing everything that I need to do right now. And the nice thing is that like, I don't have, there's nobody tell me what to do. Right. The tax man, the landlord, and I keep them squared off and then mm -hmm. I can do what I want to do. Right. So that's the, so when we start to like accumulate large, you know, numbers in the bank account, I yeah. really am like, okay, what are we going to do with the brand now? That's like, and I want to be successful, which means that we do what the customers want. Like that's right. Like that's what that means for me. And then to be able to like continue to execute well and then like fulfill the creative vision of like how we tell this story. Like we're going to, we'll do, we'll sign the book deal in the next few months. Mm -hmm. And the idea for like what I want to do to tell the story with the book is something that has not been done. And I think it, um, really honors the tradition of what this thing is in this country. And everyone, every publisher and every author I've talked to is just like, I'm in. Like, we, this is going to be crazy. Yeah. And so part of it for me is like, we'll go back to the publishers and the publishers are going to say, you know, we want this book and this is how much of an advance we're going to give you on that, right? And I know that that's probably not going to cover really what it's going to take to do this mm -hmm. we continue to have someone we have some answer your question from earlier we have someone in-house who's managing design yeah. always there's always someone there that's doing that whether that's menu printing menu design right all the way up to the merch stuff but then like there's so many design things that we have to deal with from the website to like when we do events we need to produce documents and menus yeah, and yeah. whatever there's always stuff that needs to get designed right 
Um, but then that person will be like in-house art direction on the book, which Uh is a huge project to be able to like communicate that same idea of like what is our design language and how is it going to come into a book and how are we going to get that feeling when you walk into Morgan Stern's in the store, people are just like, whoa, like Mm -hmm. what's going on here? This is crazy. Yeah. And when you open the book, you should be like, whoa, what's going on here? But Uh like how do you, you know, how do you express that in in a book, you know? So... I could pay myself some money. You know, I used to have like a bunch of toys and like motorcycles and cars and stuff like this. And like I got rid of all that stuff in the last couple of years because I was like, this is just a distraction. Mm-hmm. And this other thing that I'm doing while it's like really challenging is like so fulfilling for me. And like that just, and, you know, I take one day off a week. I try to like sleep, mm-hmm. chill, and then try to go eat somewhere where I can like get some perspective on things. Yeah. And then like boom, Monday, get back on it. And it's the greatest thing. But I sacrificed for a long time, mm-hmm. like really did. Yeah. You know, a lot of no sleep things and a lot of like working for other people to learn stuff. And, you know, that just was what it took. And now, and, you know, like kids, if you're listening, I started, I went to culinary school when I was 18. I worked for other people for 10 years plus, just like doing whatever had to be done, mm-hmm. learning how to clean, like really critical task. Like you got to clean <laughs> yep. and all that and still clean. I still clean my store all the time and clean my own shoes every night at the end of service. And like then just, and then it took me another 10 years to figure out even how to like get my, my store, my location Mm -hmm. and then get a brand and like understand what it means to build goodwill and like all of that. And then, and then now I woke up like six months ago and was like, Oh, now I can go like, now I got it. Like, right. Now, that's the feeling I have now. It's yeah. like, and you know, it's funny. You like have the reference of the Matrix, the movie. I'm like, I think about it like from the perspective of the Matrix as like all the parts in the in the recipe mm-hmm. or like in the puzzle. And yes, of course, the Matrix of like ones and zeros and like how all those things come together. Like everyone is living in their own Matrix, mm-hmm. and like how you put the pieces together for the ones and the zeros. And like, not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Not every because it's just not for everyone, and yeah. I sacrifice a lot of parts of my of my personality and like possibly creative process mm-hmm. to be an entrepreneur. There's like things that could be more developed in my reality, in my craft, and what I do if I didn't have all this other responsibility. And that's not for everyone, right? You know what I mean? Right. And that's my comment earlier about Paul Liebrandt possibly being intolerable. Mm-hmm. Is like he's so myopically focused on his craft it's been very challenging for him to then get to a place where he has a platform to do his own thing yeah. because I'm more flexible in certain ways mm-hmm. to understand like how I have to, you know, be flexible to get things to happen right. so that I can have the stage to do the thing. Yeah. So. Did you ever think about bringing on partners for this business? No, nah, I'm like super protective over it. Okay. I've had partners yeah, you've had in partners, a lot of other businesses. Yeah. yeah but, um, nah, I just like, do you get offers for partnerships every day? Yeah. Doesn't. But you like you're driving the truck. Like maybe the partner will help you get a truck driver. Nobody, <laughs> like only my managers, the people who manage with me that are like subscribed. They're the only ones that I would ever even think about that with, mm. because they're like in it, and right? They understand it so deeply and intimately, and like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll think about this differently later. But like, man, I've seen and heard so many people say like we can solve this and that. And I'm just like, you know what, man? Like I work really hard. I keep working really hard 
and hard work sometimes looks stupid. Like really, smartest guys in the room are just like, that's dumb. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, it's all good, man, because Morgan Stearns is mine. And I work really hard for it. And like, I don't mind driving the truck for Morgan Stearns. It's my brand, it's my name. And you know what, like this year I'm doing 16, 17,000 covers a week. And like next year I'm gonna do 20. Mm -hmm. And I drove the van this year so that I could do 20 next year. And I don't have to talk to anyone I don't wanna talk to. I don't have to have a conversation with some guy who's like, we should be doing this and that and the other thing. I'm like, nah, man, like I'm on a cash flow growth, mm-hmm. old school. We right. grow as we grow. Mm-hmm. It's not artificially injected. Yeah. And the tricky part nowadays is like guys that want to come in and be like strategic operators, director of operations, whatever the title is. Mm-hmm. And like they want to get paid like big money, yeah. $150,000, $250,000 a year. And then they want like big equity piece of the business. And I'm just like, listen, man. Right now, the business is valued high. Mm-hmm. I know what the business is valued at. It's, but it's, it's, I look at it and I'm just like, that's crazy. Like <laughs> millions of dollars. Uh-huh. Like, but I'm just like, today we sold this many scoops and we had this problem with keeping the counters clean. And like, those are <laughs> the things that matter to me like so crazy now. And then now I just think about like, how do we build the strategy on execution and the systems? Uh-huh so that we can run the best ice cream parlor in America. Like that's all I care about. Damn. And if you're coming in and being like, oh, we can like do this like and that. Japan, Tokyo. I'm like, bro, you don't even understand. You don't even understand. <laughs> Go scoop some ice cream. Do you, do you play sports or do you watch sports at all? I just do. You, I totally do the triathlon. I'm, not really, just, you're I'm like, not really a team player. You're like the guy that like when they talk about NBA championships and like legacies, you're like, sure. no, rebound. Like make free throws. That's that's like what you're saying. Like no, for real. That's what I. That's all I think now. And then, <laughs> I mean, the other big thing on my mind these days is like really critically, what kind of culture am I building in my organization? Mm-hmm. Like, and I just think to the staff or to the customers. You mean the staff? Oh, okay. The customer culture is is its own organism, yeah. and the customers define that. Mm-hmm. I give them the opportunity to read the menu, but they decide how they want to eat the menu. Mm-hmm. That's up to them, yep. which is its own metric, mm-hmm. which is bizarre. And believe me, I think about that. Like that's another, but that's like its own, that's almost like a singular pursuit yeah. as far as like when I sit down and I look at the menu and I'm like, what are we expressing and how do we want it to be expressed? And mm-hmm. like, what do we want that to look like and feel like and all of that? Then that functions differently. But the reality of like, how the team mm-hmm. works and how they communicate and how they interact with each other, that's... You, yeah, that's, you control that. And that's a challenge. It's Do you ever really just sit back and just like sort of in the sideline watch customers interact? All the time. Yeah? All the time. But I work the register all the time. So I work, yeah. the, I work the register. I write, right now, it's summertime. It's very busy. I'd say these weeks, I'm probably uh, manning the register like... T- 30 hours a week, something like that. 20 to 30 hours a week I'm processing on the register. So I'm just there. That's admirable. That's it's, so admirable. Let of me you. tell you, but again, like, it's not though because like. It really is, man. No, man, it's not. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's not. Because if you're an operator, if you own a business, whatever business it is, I don't care what it is, like, do that job mm-hmm. and you are going to fucking learn, dumbass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you stupid if you don't do that. Uh-huh. You're dumb. Right. Because your customer is going to tell you what they want right there. Yep. That's, That's like the best the research. The most bare bottom. Right. Like one of my oldest mentors, Yorgos, who owns Lavagna Restaurant on Fifth Street. 
back in the day, like 2008, I was like struggling with GoTown. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to file for bankruptcy, like for real. Nikki, you just have to go in front of the customer. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's just like, and I was like, I'd go and sit at the bar and eat and like, this guy's the best. And he would just be like, go in front of your customer. They're going to tell you what to do. And he Mm. was so right. Like I was, and that was when I was just running my floor and just being like, oh, actually look at the experience that your customer's having. Like look at it as though you were the customer Mm -hmm. and be like, would that piss me off? Mm -hmm. Would I be like, what the fuck is that? Or I want that. Why can't I do that? And then you'll figure it'll be like, but you got to look at it from their perspective and just be right there. Boom. And then, and also it will just make you so aware of what your employees are doing and dealing with good or bad or whatever. Just like, yo, you shouldn't be doing this. You're doing a great job with that. I see that that's a problem and we're going to fix that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't, it's also, it's just good to do it. Mm -hmm. But that's what I'm saying. Like I'm doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mistake these days, man. It's like everybody tells you you should be at 50,000 feet. I'm like, bro, you should be at 2,500 feet. Like, mm-hmm. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Where, you can't even know what the hell's going on from 50,000 feet. Right. I am not Steve Jobs. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I mean, maybe someday I'll have like a billion dollar ice cream business, but that's not what I have today. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get to that point if you think you're there and you're not. Do you want that? I, my, again, like, Do you I want don't, briars? No, I don't. I think that there's. An, I don't think about it that way. Uh-huh. I really don't. I think that the goal is to create the best ice cream in America. Like right. that's the goal, and, and, and whatever outcome comes from that, so be it. The rules are these. It's very simple rules. Show up on time. Number one, mm-hmm. hard to do when you got as many things going on as I do. Number two, be present. Number three, listen. Number four. Speak honestly and clearly. Number five, let go of the outcome. Do not, you cannot control the outcome. You can control the first four things. Mm -hmm. You cannot control the last one. But if you do the first four, the outcome will probably be some estimation close to what you want, or you might not know that that was what you wanted, but it'll be the right thing. And as they say in Buddhism, you are exactly where you are supposed to be. Period. So nice. I'm driving the van. Right. You're ringing the people up. <laughs> that's where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And dope. I can pretend like it's not, mm-hmm. but that's it. Word. So, and it's difficult these days because there's so much like chitter chatter of like all this other stuff yeah. that you should be doing. And like the VC guys that come and they're mm-hmm. like this and that. And I'm just like, yo, look at this fake news. It's right here in front of me. <laughs> Check this out. Right. Some phony baloney. <laughs> Because like I'm at the register and I'm like, no, this is real. Yeah, that kid, that person is licking having ice his cream first ice cream cone right now in my store. Yeah. That is the critical moment right now. Right, right. It's way more important. Way That's more dope. important. And you just never know. We get like mad celebrities come in. Tyler was at the store the other day. Just mm-hmm. rolls in. Mm-hmm. Under three thousand has been multiple times. He just comes in. Let me get a cone. Famous artists, like yeah. whatever. You know, they just like come through. And my staff is like, "Oh my god, Tyler was here!" And I'm just like, "Yo, he just like came and ordered ice cream. Like, didn't? That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's. And if we do our job well, then those people, every person can come and be like, "Oh, this is this place, and this is what they do. Mm-hmm. Keep doing it well, like that. Stay focused on that stuff, and right. that'll happen. It will happen for you." Thank you, man. That was awesome. Great. <laughs> that was dope. Did I answer all your questions? Yes, you did. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Let's go get ice cream.
Hey, thanks for listening to this recipe for hard work and success with the one and only Nick Morgenstern of Morgenstern's Finest Ice Cream. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. We are now at almost over 500 reviews with a 5.0 rating on Apple Podcasts. Please keep shouting us out, telling us what you think of the show. I truly, truly appreciate it. Also, do me another solid and tell just one friend about this episode. Maybe someone you know who's opening a shop of any kind, whether it's food, fashion, or footwear. I have a feeling they're going to thank you for it. We also occasionally answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Nevetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our audio interludes are composed by Gabe Darling. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpra and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded on location at the Staple headquarters in downtown New York City, a mere seven-minute walk from Morgan Stearns, which is a problem. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio. 